This is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 21. And the song lyric of the day is by Richard Wolfe, Kenny Green, and Brett Mazur. Build up, set the field up, truth is vital. A false statement's never made my recital. Raise your vibrations and raise the vibrations of others. In God's sight, we're all brothers. Pyramids to projects, subject to death, state of mind, and your brother is all we have left. Grow into new growth or let your soul float in the fire of a false desire. Mind is important, flesh is a vehicle. God is most powerful, man is a miracle. Under the prayer that was spoken by Moses, how do I know this? The Bible has told us. Watch the books you read, cause some books deceive. An evil writer may attempt to mislead. The sand of my homeland is what created man. Seek knowledge and learn, for now it's the bee turn. Welcome to the Sound Heights Records Podcast. Harmonizing life and music, growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration, conversations with world-class musicians. Hey, welcome to Sound Heights Records. This is Yisrael Aryeh. So I have had my three boys with me. Um, Yossi, who's four years old. Shmuley, who's uh, three years. And Yaakov, who's just turned uh, one year old. And just, you know, give my wife a little break. Sometimes get in the car and just go driving. One of the favorite places to go is to bookstores, or Barnes & Noble in particular is a very big place, they have lots of children's books, usually have to be prepared to, though not always, but to buy them something, <laughs> but even more I have to be prepared to buy myself something, because I'll usually wander over to the music biography section or <laughs> find some, some book related to music. I have, happen to love to, to read about music when I'm not actually playing. <laughs> Um, as long as my children are cool not hanging out in the kids' book section. So it just happened to be, at this point, the boys had found some interesting book, um, some art book they were looking through, which is near a table, which had books like on self-improvement books. And I, I wasn't really in the mood for a self-improvement book, but I was looking to see what titles. I think they were like gifts for recent college graduates or something. But one book did catch my eye, uh, and, I, and I first thought when I looked at it, it was, it was this book by our today's guest, Richard Wolff, called In Tune, Music as a Bridge to Mindfulness. So my first thought was like, hey, this guy took my idea, because <laughs> the whole idea for this podcast is, is this idea of, of using music and musical inspiration, inspiration as a musician, to bring some kind of improvement and wellness in our lives. But that was quickly followed by, by a much more reasonable thought, which was that, hey, this book looks awesome, and let me check it out. Maybe this could be a potential podcast guest. So here we are a couple of weeks later, and after having interviewed Richard Wolff, who it turns out that in addition to writing this really fascinating and helpful book, has a really storied career creating a, a lot of great music, hit music, Emmy award-winning soundtrack music. I mean, we got into a lot of, just the tip of the iceberg of some of his bio. He has some great stories that he mentions in the book of meeting Miles Davis, uh, working with Prince, working with Belbiv DeVoe, and kind of a slew of this kind of fusion of R&B hip-hop artists in the 80s and 90s. And since then... And he's really uh, a pioneer in that genre, really fusing rugged R&B sound 
live instruments with electronic instruments and what's kind of become a, a really modern sound. He was a really instrumental individual along with many of his collaborators in defining the sound of music today. So it was really an honor and a pleasure to speak to him. And of course we got into his book and his story. And one major lesson that I think stands out is something that Richard says about for musicians that it often seems like, at least initially, that music can be your everything. And ultimately, a musician really needs to find some other aspect, some kind of balance in their life through some other kind of practice other than just music. And I think he's, he's right on with that, which is really, again, what this podcast is a lot about, that in order to... Music can be a fuel, and it can be something that, that enhances one's life and can be a major, major central part of one's life. But if one hopes to find all of their satisfaction and and their inspiration in music alone then often that leads to kind of an unbalanced approach the way richard describes in his story he was experiencing he had a lot of success in music but he was experiencing uh, panic attacks and finding uh, and developing a meditation practice with which he used his experience and his success in what he'd achieved as a musician to help him grow more spiritually to help him kind of calm down, develop uh, a meditation practice. I find that resonates with me, my own story about having kind of gone really deeply into the creative realm in almost a chaotic and ungrounded way and having to find my way back into a balanced place through my own spiritual path, which also included meditation practice earlier on, which kind of morphed over time as I started to learn more about my Jewish roots and traditional Jewish prayer and meditation into a, a more Hasidic, mystical Jewish practice. Um, so we were able to speak about some of the aspects of meditation, and, and he actually, in his book, coming from a Jewish background, and he does mention a couple of Jewish mystical sources, um, Hasidic sources, in his book, and he kind of presents it in the framework of mindfulness practice. Ultimately, the experience of reading his book was a really good reminder for me to kind of stop and slow down, even within my musical experiences, to listen more deeply, to think about being more present. Um, I think it's a great work and a great contribution, in addition to all the great music that he's shared with us throughout the years. And so if you go seeking it out, I'll, I'll put links. Um, he has a really extensive discography, and most of it's not under his name. I mean, often his name is on there as a producer, composer, but usually it's music that's under another artist's name that he was pivotal and instrumental in the creation of that music. So check out the show notes for a number of links to some of the great music of Richard Wolf. Just before we get to the interview, I'd like to thank our patrons, our Patreon patrons, for supporting this and all of our podcasts and music releases. And you can join them by going to soundheightsrecords.com slash Patreon, where you'll find a growing list of unreleased tracks, some pre-released tracks that, by becoming a patron, you get access to. You can download them and keep them um, these are unique creations from Sound Heights Records, original music not heard anywhere else. So without further delay, here's our interview with Richard Wolfie Wolf. time before I could talk I was hearing music in my in my mind and uh, I was writing songs when I was five years old so 
um, I grew up in Manhattan and I was exposed to all kinds of music. I was exposed to classical music from my parents and my father also listened to jazz and pop music and on the street you had street musicians and you had, you know, drunken opera singers at two in the morning singing in the alleys and all of that uh, I related to and connected with. So the drunken opera singers, am I guessing this is kind of uh, around the area of, of the Met? <laughs> or, or the oh, league? no, these are, these are, these are, drunk, <laughs> these are amateurs okay. who uh, <laughs> get inspired when they have enough alcohol in them. And, uh, you know, this is when I was growing up. You don't hear it too much lately, but there were a few, a few of those that were uh, singing and expressing themselves at weird hours of the morning. What, what inspired by liquor. Well, they grew up on uh, 100th Street and Riverside Drive the uh, first you know, 12 years of my life. So the, the songs you were writing, you, you, did you, re, you receive, uh, imagine, a lot of encouragement at that time? Oh, um, yeah. I, I, uh, when I was in kindergarten, I, I would teach... Um, my fellow students, uh, songs, uh, one or two songs that I had composed. And, uh, yeah, I, that was just something I did. I didn't think about it too much. It was just, it just came to me and I just expressed it. Did you play an instrument at that young? Did you start playing? Yeah. My parents got me piano lessons when I was six. Uh, my mother was a piano player. My father was an amateur drummer. Um, and they were very musical. So, yeah, I, I started uh, lessons uh, pretty young. So then, so from, I mean, so at what point, I've, um, going from writing songs, sharing it with your kindergarten, I mean, I, was it a smooth progression, let's say, as you got older, your studies <laughs> deepened? Or did you, I mean, I imagine you were interested in a lot of other different things. I mean, I get, you know... Um, or were you pretty singular in your musical passion? No, I think you're right. I mean, you know, music is was, was the five million pound elephant in the room, but I was interested in other things. Uh, I had curiosity about the world and, uh, you know, the cause of things and where everything came from and, you know, the all the questions that young people ask themselves and ask of the universe. So I had other interests as well, for sure. And I loved literature, and I loved poetry, and um, I was interested in, in spiritual matters. Did you grow up with a particular uh, spiritual tradition? Well, yeah, my parents were, were Jewish, and, um, and uh, so that's what we grew up with. So what was that, did that was that inform your your ideas or or that was I know for me I, I I didn't grow up I grew up Jewish but not religious and for me that that was a source of something I wanted to run away from or <laughs> um, at least when I was younger. Well, I was I was I was fascinated by the music, especially um, the mystical side of Judaism and, and, and the wordless songs that they have. Um, so I, I identify, I love the music, you know, I loved all kinds of music and I was exposed to religious music and especially mystical or Hasidic. And, uh, and I related to that on a, on a musical level. In what, um, in what context were you exposed to Hasidic music? Um, well, I went to school and, and I was in the choir, and so we sang some of those songs in the choir. You know, um, I think that's you know that's where I learned it was in being a singer in the choir. I was number two singer, <laughs> 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 which is amazing because today probably be number you know zillion. I'm not a very good singer, but. <laughs> Guess I made up in passion what I lacked in talent. <laughs> and so, at, at what point did you, you did you kind of decide that this was going to be your professional life as well? You know, I think music decides for you. I mean, I didn't. I didn't. You know, I, I mean, 
this was something that I, I did. I just wrote songs and played songs, and and this was, you know, an obsession I had. But I didn't think I could make a living at it. Um, you know, I went to college for, for uh, to study international affairs. I had this idea of inter- peace through international law. Hmm. And so, um, but I got a record deal when I was a freshman. Uh, I got a deal with uh, Muscle Shoals. A freshman Muscle in Shoals high school? Alabama. No, freshman in college. Oh, in college, okay. Right. So... Uh, and and the people that signed me were working with, um, you know, known. Um, they were professionals in the music business. Uh, I think they were recording Leonard Skinner at the time. This is in Alabama. Where you know, Muscle Shoals. I don't know if you, are you familiar with Muscle Shoals, Alabama? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have never been there, but sure, I'm familiar with the music that comes out of there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's. It's the home uh, of one of the homes of funk. I mean, this is where funk really started. One of the places it started. Rita Franklin recorded there, and Wilson Pickett, and, and Bob Dylan ended up there, and Bob Seger, and, and Paul Simon, and one legend after another. The Black Keys are there now, I think. Hmm. They've been there recently. Um, and so when I saw that there were professionals that are doing this for a living that, you know, liked my music, it dawned on me that maybe this could happen. How did they find you? How did they hear your music? Well, I, I was a student and I was playing in a coffee house there and there was another singer and uh, unbeknownst to me, she had been coming to my gigs, learned my songs and she had a record deal. And so her producer wanted to know who wrote this, that song that she was singing and he came up to, to my dorm and he recorded me there and then brought the recording back down and I was offered a deal. This was college in, in Alabama? No, College of Washington, George Washington University. Oh, okay. Washington, D.C., which is not that far from Alabama. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you got a few hours to drive, right. Um, and did, did, so, you, so you ended up working out of Marshall Shoals then? Yeah, I, uh, well, I, I, was, I recorded uh, in Muscle Shoals. Uh, and, yeah. Spooner Oldham is... Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 know he's, I know he was involved in Dylan's recordings there. Yeah. Was that... Yeah. Did you have any contact with him? Oh, well, not at that time. I ran when I was in Dylan's studio in 1980, Spooner was there and uh, and uh very briefly said hello. I met him there in Dylan's studio. Oh, in in, in LA or in Santa Monica. In LA. Yeah. yeah. The, in Santa Monica, the converted Muhammad Ali studio. Yeah. Oh. Well. Um so so that was so this uh so you basically, was you got a recording contract, and yeah. so what did that lead to? You, you, who were you working with at that point? Well, I, I had a recording contract. I was a freshman, so I went down in the winter time to start the record, and I had to go back to school. And uh, so to finish the record, I came in uh, in the summertime back down, and I had changed the lyrics to one of the songs because I had written it when I was 17. I was now 19, much more mature, much older, and I couldn't sing those old lyrics. Right. And my producers disagreed with me, and they said I should sing the old lyrics, because those are the lyrics they signed me for. But I was an idiot. Uh, I was an obstinate idiot, uh, <laughs> standing on my principles, and said I can't sing those lyrics. I was 17 then. Uh-huh. And uh, so we, we parted ways. So what, how did you feel? I mean, after that, I mean, did it seem like you were you kicking yourself? I mean, did you, did you, or you, you felt good about that decision? No, yeah. I didn't feel good about that decision. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, well, I didn't feel good about the consequences right. of the decision. I don't know. I can't remember. You, you mentioned if I can remember. I don't remember if I regretted it necessarily. I thought I had made the right decision. I was a knucklehead, but but I sure, certainly regretted the fact that I was exiled. It took me another I don't know till I was twenty seven to get back into the studio and make records again. So, well, so what were you doing in that in that interim time? I was trying to you know I was writing songs and doing little gigs. I had you know I had a gig in New York working at a studio that did uh, commercial commercials and industrial films. And when I came out to LA, I worked on some industrial films for the phone company, et cetera, et cetera. Were you studying music in, uh, in school? I mean, was that, 
you had a, like a, a lot of formal training? I was not a good music student, like for theory or reading, you know, writing music and reading music. I'm not very good at it. And I know I was, you know, I can understand theory up to a point, but uh, I was studying. Well, I did take courses at Juilliard after I graduated in piano and a Manhattan School of Music in electronic music, you know, in their, in their extension division. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, I did learn, you know, I did intensify my piano studies and my electronic music training. But it sounds like your, your abilities you, you cultivated, I mean, it was basically, I mean, you're mostly self-taught in terms of, cause you obviously accomplished a lot with what you've had. Um, it's just, just your, your perseverance and your, your passion for the music, um, I guess originality. I mean, it seemed to be a really strong point with your your process. Well, hi, thank you. I, I, yes, that that's always was important to me um, to try to do something original. I mean, it became much more important later than than when I started. You know, when I started, I was you know you you imitate your icons, right, and then and then find your own unique voice so did you so when did you feel like you started to find to find that after already you were getting a lot of work later on or or during that that period of time in your 20s you you felt like you were hit hitting on your your musical stride well yeah i i went through different periods of doing different kinds of music like folk jazz at one point uh, I really got into, uh, uh, you know, jazz influenced rock. Uh, and I, I didn't feel that I really was doing anything, uh, innovative until I worked in combining it with Belle Biv DeVoe, uh, members of new edition. Um, and we worked on that album poison, which was, uh, crossing over hip hop, R and B and pop which hadn't been done before. That was their vision. That was mm. Because they had, you know, grown up in, in the projects in Boston. They were usually successful in pop R&B, but what they listened to was hip-hop, and it was their vision to combine, and uh, that, that was something that, uh, that I felt was uh, necessary also. And that's when I first felt that we were doing something uh, visionary. So that, that was around when you were like, you were getting those opportunities in your late twenties. That was a late. That was late eighties. I was in the late eighties. I don't remember. Right, right. Yeah, but I was in the late eighties. I mean, I remember. I mean, I remember that in music. Early nineties. I was in you know junior high, high school when that music was coming out, um, and uh, you know, to, and obviously you 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 were involved in the creation of a lot of that music. I mean, how how did you so going from, you know, walking away from the the Muscle Muscle Shoals deal. To, to working with Belbo DeVoe and and I know you, you um, I mean you did it. There's a lot of other seminal recordings that you were involved in, and I, I I'd love to hear some of that because so what happened when it's things start obviously when the work started coming it really started coming. I mean you, you were involved in a producer team. Like how did it all come together? Yeah, well of course from the time that 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 I had left uh, Muscle Shoals, but then then again. In the late '70s, we I was involved with a band called Crimson Tide on Capitol. That was like a southern, southern rock funk band. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was a staff writer at Warren Warner Brothers, and I did that. Um, so I, I was just you know writing songs that other people were covering, mm-hmm. and um, and then uh, did the uh, started with Belvedere DeVoe, and um, so that was the transition there, um, but that's not what you asked me. That you asked me that question two questions ago. What was the last question you asked? You yeah, no, answer it. You know, I'm, I'm I'm interested in in that whole that whole process from you. Is how you how yeah. obviously you, you start. You know, Bebe DeVoe were you know were huge. I mean, you you started. I'm sure a lot of work came out of that. You started to become known. I know you you um, you have stories in your, in your book of. I mean, I this is probably um, later of you, you worked. I know you you did a, a remix for 
um, for Seal was that that was those few years later, yeah. obviously. Uh, but yeah. uh, between the, I mean, there was a lot, obviously a lot of. But it seemed to be like things were taking off for you at that time. Yeah, when I was at Warner Warner Chapel Music, um, there was a, a a woman who worked there. I was very friendly with, um, and she recommended an intern. He was a seventeen-year-old DJ, Brett Mazer, known as Epic. Mm-hmm. And he was the only other person in L.A. that I knew that was into hip-hop at that time. Um, hip-hop really was an East Coast thing. It wasn't too big on the West Coast. You didn't have N.W.A. yet. You had Ice-T, mm-hmm. and that was it. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, I guess you had the Wrecking Crew that Dr. Dre had started. But it was a very, very small thing. And so he went to school with um, Ronnie DeVoe's twin brother. So he had a connection to, to New Edition and Bill Bib DeVoe. And he and I hooked up. He, he was, he's a drummer and a DJ, and we became a team, Wolf and Epic. And um, so we, we signed a rapper, uh, Laquan, and uh, I got a record deal on Island Records for him. And, and we, that's how it started to take off. I I'm, I remember I, uh, New Edition that was, when I I think I was I think I, I must have been in like junior high age, I know I was really young, I I was like that that was that their big hit was like Cool It Now, I remember yeah I was way well when I had a lot of hits <laughs> yeah. Telephone Man Candy Girl Cool It Now yeah that yeah that was my like that was my group when I was I was like a, and I remember I did an audition for some play. And I brought Cool It Now. It was like people were looking at me like, <laughs> was that? I don't know, it was like not the normal thing that people brought in. For <laughs> and I did the whole little rap there. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, I must have been like 11. It was, um, so then, um, so, what is, so what are some of the highlights from those years? I mean, um, obviously you, you worked as, as in a team with, with I mean, different people or you, you had a, a regular partner? Well, mainly, mainly it was Brett, mm-hmm. Brett Mazer, Brett Epic Mazer. We yeah. were Wolf and Epic, and uh, mainly we were, that was our thing, and uh, we worked on stuff together. Um, we complimented each other because, you know, I was, I played guitar and keyboards, and, and he plays drums and is a DJ, and um, and we sampled each other at, at that time. You know, sampling is, you know, there's still sampling, but I mean, sampling was really dominant. Mm-hmm. And um, we incorporated live playing with samples. So we sampled each other. You know, he played drums and I played guitar. And, and so we used our own original samples. And that was, that was something that was new because either you were doing all live or you were doing all samples, but there right. was no combination. And I think that's what, when, when, um, Velvet DeVoe heard what we were doing with Laquan. Uh, they wanted us to work on, with them on their sound. And then how did I, so I guess, again, I guess it was a few years later, but how did you, um, so you you remixed the, the Seal, remember that, um, was it the song Crazy? Crazy, yeah. Yeah, what happened was the, uh, the A&R guy at, at, at Warner Brothers called me and he said, you know, we've got this record by Trevor Horns, the producer's great English producer, and this Axe Seal, and we would like you to do a remix for Urban Radio. We need to get Urban Radio on this. And um, they sent me the record, and I called them back. I said, man, this record is perfect. Uh, Why do you want us to fuck with it? I mean, you know, we're not going to, this is a brilliant record. Just let it be. Just get behind this record. It's terrific. He calls me back two months later, and he says, yeah, we're getting nice reaction, but we can't get any urban airplay. We're not getting on the radio stations we need to get. So we want you to do a remix. So um, so we agreed to do it. Benny Medina, uh, the legendary a guy, who also was Prince's a guy, um, you know, kind of hung out with us, and and we did a remix, and that was the the version that they played on Urban Radio on the Power 106s, uh, Hot 97s uh, of the time. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it, I was checking that out. I mean, it's, you you re- I mean, you basically recreated the whole track besides his voice. That's right. That's right. 
we the only thing we kept was his vocal. Wow. And so, and that is that the one that got like the, a lot of play on MTV, or is that the which was it your track? Because that that's I what, don't that was my. I think it was on. I, I, that was the one that was on the radio mm-hmm. more than anything because it was on you know the urban radio stations. I don't think there was more than one than the original version on MTV. As far as I I can tell, I can remember. I think it was the original version on T on MTV, not our remix. But our remix was on the radio um, a lot. So you, did you you end up working with Prince as well? Uh, yeah, same. Yeah, remix. He reached out to us yeah, and asked us to do a remix. So did uh, did you get did you work you work directly with him? You or he sent you tracks? How yeah, did that work? Work, work. Yeah, you know, they said <laughs> <laughs> um, his lawyer called, and we were amazed. Okay, Prince, and and uh, they we did a deal. We they send over the tapes. It's Prince, and you know we're going nuts. But um, again, with Prince. Usually we replace all the tracks and just do it fresh. And the only thing we keep is the vocals. Mm-hmm. With Velvet DeVoe, we didn't even keep the vocals. Um, but here we knew we were, <laughs> we got to keep the vocals, but there were certain things we didn't know to keep or not. He plays guitar, I play guitar. So I play guitar on it too. And mm-hmm. he was cool with it, but he would give feedback to us um, through Benny Medina again. Um, you know, I'd be sitting in the office with Benny, and Prince would go, you know, uh, Benny, tell Wolf that I like the trombones, but I want more trumpets or something. And Benny would say, "Hey, Prince says more trumpets." You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, did you have did you have direct interaction with them at all, or was it all through Benny? It was all through Benny. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, and then we would get these calls. Prince wants to come to your studio tonight. Uh, but he's coming at one in the morning. Is that okay? I say, yeah, it's okay. It's fine. And so it's, we'd be there waiting for him and didn't show up. <laughs> and, and he would relay his, his stuff to, you know, other people. <laughs> but we were happy. We were thrilled that he sought us out. He, he studied our, our style and, uh, and let us work on a, on one of his records. That's a, that's amazing. Which, which record was and that? Paid us nicely for it. Yeah. Right? Which record was that? It's called Horny Pony. Well, that was in the in the nine in the ninety one or ninety. Right, really nice. Okay, I'm gonna have to take another listen to that one. <laughs> um, and you also, I mean, you also was it around the same time you met, uh, or I guess earlier, um, Miles Davis? You know, you have you discuss. In your book, and which we'll get, I want to get to, you know, pretty soon. But like, um, did did you actually end up working with Miles Davis? I know you discussed in your book meeting him. No, no, um, I was friendly with his producer Tommy Lapuma, and I uh, was in New York at the time. It was 1985, hmm. and it was springtime. It's beautiful in New York. In those days in May, it was spring in New York. You know. Yeah. Um, before climate change <laughs> and um and tommy i'm i'm hanging out with tommy and because uh, tommy was a warner brothers i was a warner brothers writer anyway we were you know we were friendly and, and we had hit it off and uh and tommy gets a call from miles and he says to me you know you want to go have lunch with miles oh, yeah are you crazy of course and so it was just the three of us in the in the whole restaurant. There was nobody there except for Miles when we walk in, and he's wearing this beautiful thick fur coat. <laughs> and uh, so the three of us had lunch, and, and Miles was just telling story after story, and uh, it was it was really something I'll never forget. So what, what was I mean? Because in, in the in the in the book, you you talk about some wisdom he dropped regarding right silence. Right. But uh, so right. that's I guess you if you don't mind, you you uh, share maybe a, a story or an anecdote that that he shared. If you can pull one up, <laughs> if it's appropriate. Well, the problem with the anecdotes <laughs> is they're you know X-rated. Right, right. As if, if it's appropriate, I, I read his bio, his uh, autobiography. <laughs> Every other word yeah. is uh, is <laughs> is not fit for uh, children. Yeah, it's you know like uh, I, I can't finish the anecdote, but I can start it. He said to me, you know, in a couple of days I'm going to the Holy Land, hmm. meaning Israel. I said, oh, 
what are you going to do there, Miles? <laughs> and he said, I'm going to do what I do best. Oh. And I said, what is that, Miles? <laughs> and I'll let you fill in the blank. Yeah, I he didn't it. play the trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> But he would, he told you know he did tell he started told a story about a, a woman piano player that had the, in Chicago she was a blues player and he was amazed because she had big rocks diamonds on every finger and yet she never hit a wrong note hmm. and but you know he would tell story after story but then he stopped and he was quiet and and Tommy and I just looking at him waiting for him to continue. And he says, you know what the most vital lesson I learned about music? I said, no, what is it? He said, the importance of silence. And he said, ayerto. He taught that to me. Now, I know ayerto was was a well-known Brazilian percussion player. Yeah. And uh, I didn't understand what he meant at the time. But it connected with me, you know, on a, on a level, on a, on a very deep level. It took me 15 years to figure out what he meant by that. But so, so what did he mean? I guess it's a good segue to start talking about the the themes in your book. So, so what what did you discover? What did it take you 15? If you can relate in a few, in a few minutes, what it took you 15 years to discover? Well, silence. If you listen to Miles. You know, there's, uh, let's take an obvious example in a silent way. Um, if you listen to any of the music on there, the the rhythm section, which includes everybody except Miles and, and the horn player, whoever that might be at the moment, um, is establishing a groove. They're playing a, a groove, right? And then establishes kind of like a bed, and they take up certain frequencies. Right? And Miles comes in, and his frequency, his space on the record is empty hmm. when he's not there. And then he emerges from the silence. You can hear him emerge from the silence. And then he gets, you know, louder. And then he finishes, and you can hear him decaying back, descending back into the silence. And he lets the silence dominate. Hmm. And that's a real important part of the, the record. And by the way, the rest of the musicians occupy similar uh, roles. Like the piano player, Herbie, will emerge from the silence too, and you can hear how he's punctuating the silence. And so in music, it's obvious that, that Miles is very aware of, of the space of silence coming in and out of it. And arising and ceasing, you know, is is uh, an important theme in everywhere, right? And silence is so important to music that people don't think about this, but you you know something about music notation. For every notation for the duration of a sound, there's an equal notation for the duration of silence, mm. right? You have a whole tone of sound. You have a whole tone of silence. It goes all the way up to 128th note. You you can't hear 128th note of silence. All right, unless it's very slow music. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You have to. Yeah, but you can't really hear that. But the point is made that silence is equal to sound in music. Hmm. And this was made, that point was made hundreds of years ago by the people that invented musical notation. And silence is important in, in life because when you can silence the voice inside your head, you can really experience what's happening for what it is directly without the voice interpreting it for you. What inspired you to actually to start writing the book? I, I, I had a curiosity about uh, Zen from the very beginning, you know, from when I was a teenager, and I, I got involved with Zen meditation, but I couldn't keep up with it, and I got sidetracked with music, etc. But, you know, there, there there was a an occurrence in my life where I got, had a panic attack, and the therapist, you know, I did went to an anxiety specialist, a panic specialist, mm. and he prescribed meditation for me twice a day. And um, 
so then I, I, I took it very seriously. I said, well, my whole life I've been doing this tango with meditation. I haven't been able to do it. And here the therapist is telling me this is the solution to anxiety and panic. And so I better figure out how to do it. And um, I came across a book that compared training your mind to training a wild animal. And it just, you know, the, the, the author, who's a Tibetan uh, meditation master and animal trainer, said, you know, it's just repetitious, uh, the repeating movement of bringing your distracted mind back to the object of focus. And uh, I started to get to say, to make a connection between my experience as a musician, which is to practice um, certain pieces on the piano or on the guitar. You know, if you have a gig, you practice the song, you rehearse it, right? If you're going to play in a record, you know, I, I used to practice, you know, my parts for the records. And I had uh, mediocre talent. But because I practiced, I could play and perform what I had to do. And I, I made that connection with, uh, with meditation that I have confidence and faith that if I just patiently repeat the same motions over and over again of bringing my distracted mind back to the object of what I'm concentrating on, um, eventually I get better at it, just like I got better at guitar playing or piano playing. And uh, that gave me encouragement and confidence to keep practicing, even though it was very, very difficult to do. Hmm. And so it worked. We made that connection, and it worked. It for the first time in my life. I've been trying this for many decades, and for the first time it actually worked. And then I started to see all these other connections, which made it even more comfortable uh, and, and more inspiring to continue to practice deeper connections and, and uh, meaningful connections between musical experience and the, these other practices of mindfulness and meditation, which can be applied to life um, in a way that music doesn't apply to life. Because for a few reasons, um, one reason is that uh, the music stops. Mm -hmm. and it's a high when you're involved with it, but... It, it inevitably is just going to stop. And when the music stops, you're sort of like helpless. You know, you, you're defenseless in the world. And the other practices of meditation and mindfulness give you certain skills to be able to cope with challenges and to be able to see things in a certain way that makes it a little bit easier mm -hmm. to deal, to deal with life's challenges. And, um, and so those are important differences. And then uh, even on a deeper level, uh, you go, you know, s sound is an echo of the soundless. It's a gateway into silence. And then silence is a gateway to what's beyond sound and silence. Hmm. So it's, it's, you know, that, that whole process of that idea that let's say um, the music stops. I mean, I know, I know Kenny Werner. If you're familiar with Kenny Werner's book *Effortless Mastery*, which is something that a lot of people have been um, influenced by, where he talks about uh, his his own process, his own kind of psychological crisis, and he 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 figured out a way with music to reach a state of of peacefulness and and he says you know if only i could transfer this over to my life you know if i only had a piano around my neck all the time when i sit at the piano i feel at peace you know when i when i leave the piano i, I he implying that not it's not necessarily the case i mean i'm not sure that was years ago he wrote the book maybe he's developed since then but so for for you it, it was it's not so much the the peacefulness that you or let's say did you could you relate to a sense of, let's say, calm, peacefulness, the, the opposite of panic, um, while you were involved in music, while you're listening to music, and then your your desire was to um, to bring that feeling into your life, or was it more that that you discovered the the, the antidote through the meditation, and and then um, 
you were you're able to re- recognize it again in, in music? Well, through the experience of meditation and mindfulness, I saw parallels with music, and then I saw things that, you know, where those practices of meditation and mindfulness filled the gap that music leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wasn't trying to achieve the same state in meditation as I achieved in music, because then I wouldn't have to meditate, and then music would solve all the problems, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the great, the great uh, conundrum is that people that are involved in music professionally um, need something else to balance their lives, or they end up like Prince, overdosing on fentanyl, mm-hmm. or Michael Jackson overdosing on Profanel, whatever that's called. Um, or Elvis, or Tom Petty, or Kurt Cobain, or you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, music for those who are involved in music as as a living and as a lifestyle, it's not enough. You you need that balance. Hmm. Um, it's some some kind of balance, it, and and too often people find it in in drugs or alcohol addictions. Um, and then sometimes they don't find it at all and end up, you know, in, in, in you know, suicide or self-destructive behaviors. Um, and so, right, it's almost like the, the the creative spirit is prone to that kind of chaos. It's almost that maybe creative people, particularly musicians, particularly ones who are particularly creative and active, almost need something even more than an average person <laughs> to ground them and to, to bring us a, a sense of, of harmony to their lives. Yes. Uh, you know, I've heard that. I've heard people express that and, and it sounds like there's a lot of truth in that. You know, when you're, when you're living so much of <clears throat> spending so much of your day in the part of your brain that is non-analytical, non-discursive, uh, really non-rational, which which is the intuitive, creative part of your brain. Um, you know, it's it's yeah, you're out of you're out of whack in terms of balancing it with the with the rational side, and then it's all about it's all about the subjective judgments about people, you know, accepting your creativity or not, a particular creation or not, or accepting at a level that you're used to, if you're used to being Michael Jackson, number one, uh, on the radio and turning on the radio and hearing your voice all the time, and then you turn on the radio and you don't hear yourself anymore, doesn't matter that you're a billionaire. Hmm. You know, you're, you're suffering because you're not what you used to be. You know, you used to be high. You're used to a certain high, and it ain't there anymore. Whether you're Elvis or Prince or Michael Jackson or whoever, the, 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 the top of the game. Right. I mean, Bruce Springsteen, his autobiography, if you read his autobiography, he's talking yeah. about, you know, he talks about how he sits and cries. He'll sit and cry for the whole day. He's so depressed. He'll just sit and cry all day long. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 heard, I listened to him read, read, read that. that was <laughs> it's, it's very sobering because it's like a person strives, you know, especially... Uh, you know, they, they strive for some kind of success. And with a little bit, I guess, with a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of hearing stories like that, or, you know, just paying attention to almost anybody who's successful, their story, it's obviously not enough. I mean, I guess in today's culture, um, you know, people often, their, their identities are really bound, even more than, than before, so bound up in others' perceptions of them. So yeah. I, I guess you're, what you're, what you, I mean, you're the, the, um, practice that you're describing in the book is a particular, I, I guess it's particularly a, a Zen meditation practice or are you kind of drawing from different sources to develop your own system? Obviously you, you come up with very unique exercises using musical um, rhythms and, and tonal. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, it's very creative the way that you, you I mean, I'm, are you, are you, I'm, I'm presuming you came up with a lot of that yourself from different yeah. traditions. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I, I did. I mean, I studied Zen 
I started when I was a teenager. But uh, um, so I modify slight modifications, like you say, to add tonal elements or rhythmic elements, musician-friendly elements or music-lover-friendly elements to help make the meditation techniques stickier, you know, easier to to follow or more interesting, without getting too complicated. Um, at the back of the book, there's some more complicated techniques, you know, and I, we kept them in the back and after everything else, if people wanted to pursue that. But the techniques in the book are based on Zen and they're based on Vipassana, insight meditation, and, and yoga, pranayama, and, um, and they're just slightly modified. And, and also there's, there's a section there on self-inquiry. Hmm. which is from uh, Advaita Vedanta, from Sri Ramana Maharshi. Uh, that's where I learned it from anyway. Uh, but it's in a, a lot of different traditions too. Um, so there are, there are, there's a range of uh, influences there from different meditative traditions. Yeah, these are, it's all things that, I mean, when I, um, as Definitely part of my journey when starting also in, in high school age, I started. Um, I had an older friend um, who was getting into uh, particularly Zen practice, and he brought me to Mount Tremper. Um, I, I ended up spending some time up there, and that was before I kind of started discovering some of my Jewish roots and some of the parallels there. Um, but and then finding, I noticed that in your um, we were speaking a little bit before, but you have some some references to certain Jewish teachings in I know uh, Arya Kaplan meditation in Kabbalah. You quote the um, book from the Lubavitcher Rebbe in in the the beginning um, of the book. So how how has I mean you talk about your a little bit about your your Jewish background? Is that something you how do you relate to that at this point um, as informing your your practice or in terms of your path? Well, the idea of the divine um, in mystical Judaism is something that I reconcile with my experience as a meditator. Um, divine consciousness. I mean, the, the uh, ultimate reality uh, in Zen is called, it's referred to as essence of mind by Hui Neng, referred to as essence of mind. Sometimes it's called universal consciousness. Um, so in mystical Judaism, you also have this sort of, uh, it's called the end self, the, the endless, which is, um, which I identify as essence of mind, hmm. universal consciousness. Uh, it has, there are no personal characteristics to this consciousness, which underlies er everything that exists and doesn't exist. And so it's there in many traditions. It's there in Hinduism, in Vaita Vedanta. It's there in mystical Judaism. Um, I understand it's there in Sufi. I don't know too much about it, but I've, I've heard that. And, and so this is, um, you know, I, I identify it as divine. Now, other people will say, you know, okay, it's just the semantics to me. They don't like the, calling it divine consciousness, but they don't have a problem calling it ultimate reality or the absolute. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of Zen literature will refer to the absolute, or in addition to ultimate reality. But it seems like the the, the phrase divine consciousness implies, um, you know, a, a a creator with a with a will for creation, and it seems like, from my understanding, to some degree, that that. Eastern traditions don't necessarily ascribe um, a creator with a, a specific will for the creation for the for us as individuals. How, how do you understand that, or do you feel like there is, or in, in terms of your own belief, that there is kind of a, um, a a divine hand, let's say, that's that's guiding us or that's leading us collectively and as individuals to to some transcending goal. Well, I don't know. I I, I don't know. I, I I all I know is that it's it's a mystery. Hmm. And and uh, I know there's a mystery there. 
and I'm aware of the mystery, and I'm aware of that I don't know. Hmm. You know, you call that don't know mind, or beginner's <laughs> mind, or whatever. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I, my experience is the ultimate reality, essence of mind, absolute, is something that no one is separate from. Uh, there is a book, uh, and we're going to have to look up Michelson. Mm-hmm. Michelson called Everything is God. Um, and he reconciles all these philosophies. Everything is God. Nothing is separate from this consciousness. Everything is made up of this consciousness. So this idea that there is that you can be separate from ultimate reality is um, incomplete mm-hmm. idea because you are what, like William Blake said, you see the, the whole world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, the whole eternity in the palm of your hand, and uh, no, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> Um, and just a, it was a, one of the books, that, again, you mentioned the, the Arya Kaplan, the meditation in Kabbalah. One of the things that really struck me in that book in the, in the introduction, um, I remember when I was, I remember I read it early on when I was just beginning to learn a little bit about my Jewish roots, having come from studying Tibetan um, traditions and, and Zen traditions. Um, he talks about um, that there's a Kabbalistic tradition that the Eastern I mean, you're probably familiar with this because, you know, you mentioned the book, but um, that the Eastern spiritual traditions were inheritors of, um, you know, as it says in, in the Bible about about Abraham sending his sons east with, yeah. with gifts. So I thought that yeah. was really intriguing, like kind of a connection between the Jewish traditions and the Eastern traditions is, is kind of inherent in that story. Um, is what you're saying, kind of, you know, there there are certainly parallels with these concepts. It seems like that from what you're reading your book and, and in terms of um, as a musician and as someone who has, is developing a, a, a more, a more broad a spiritual practice, it seems like the meditation is kind of a goal in itself. Um, that uh, That seems to be what, like a major theme of your book, that a person... Um, is is kind of getting. It almost seems like I guess there's a theme of detachment, right? From more petty concerns, or or even there's a you have uh, you discuss selfless in the section on selflessness. This idea of like moving beyond oneself. And I at, at one point I think it was in the chapter on on trance that you you discuss the advantage of of meditation over music as as you say something about like if somebody is, is becoming completely selfless and completely lets go, then they'll lose the beat and maybe <laughs> lose the gig entirely. Um, I thought that was a funny, a funny image, you know, someone getting, um, so, but then also, but then in the, that's in the, and then later in the section on selflessness, you do talk about this idea of like being a channel for a higher song, just kind of the song playing itself through a person. So the, those things, how do you, how do you reconcile those two things that like, let's say a person is involved in a musical uh, practice, a musical performance, and that that they can are also completely letting go, and also the music is not <laughs> falling off the rails. Uh, do, do you because uh, it seems like you you kind of state both that one that, that a person is it gets too deep into their mindfulness practice while they're playing music, they could lose the the train of the music. <laughs> but in another in another sense, that if a person is um, deepenly enough involved in the music that they can, they lose any sense of um, attachment to it, meaning it's just kind of flowing through a personal, you know, personal ego in it. And it's kind of flowing through them. Do you see, uh, how, how would you reconcile that? Well, I don't see, I, I don't see a problem. I mean, when you're, you know, if you're flowing with the music, that means you're concentrating on the music and you're in, totally immersed in the music and you're, and you're focused on it. So you, I mean, you could lose the beat if you're not, if you don't have a good sense of rhythm. But I mean, if you normally have a good sense of rhythm and you're you're immersed in the music and you're focused in it, your mind and body are harmony in harmony. You're an integrated being because you're feeling and 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 every 
heart of your being is immersed and focused in the music. Um, and so that's, there's no problem there. I mean, you're, it, it's not about you anymore mm-hmm. in terms of your ego and who you are. It's about the music. You want to take that song to the best place it can be taken to. And that's, that's what your focus is on. And, um, and if you're playing with other musicians, playing, you know, doing in concert with what they're doing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, you have to stay. The thing about the thing about the difference with, between music and mindfulness is that in the music, you have a definite one path that you're going down, which is the, you're tethered to the harmonic, rhythmic, and melodic restrictions of the music that you're playing. Mm. Whereas in mindfulness, you have an open receptivity and awareness to whatever comes across your field mm. of experience. You're open to whatever. So, so that's, that's the, that's big difference there. Yeah, I, I love I love the, your description of of Col, you know obviously Coltrane is is someone who embodies a lot of those characteristics as someone who um, even in in the music I mean this like you you talk about him in in his musical expression being like as if he's um, meditating or you know he's um, what was the term you use for for a certain breathing meditation it, the term was Kensho I found it Kensho. Kensho is is yeah. uh, is enlightenment. That's a word for is the word for enlightenment. Oh, okay, yeah, right, right. Japanese term for enlightenment, huh? So, it's it's almost that about John Coltrane. Oh, sure, he's sure. such a he's such a, a perfect example of non duality. Right. Meaning, the opposite of one truth can be another truth. We hold they're both true, right? So the ultimate reality is true, but so is conventional reality. If you got to do your laundry. And you got to clean your nails, and that's all true too. So, Coltrane had this unique voice, this one-of-a-kind voice that was separate from every other voice in the universe, and you could identify that mm. very, very easily. You can tell right away that's John Coltrane, nobody else. But but his message and what he's communicating is universal. Right. It, it applies to everybody. It's connected with every living thing, and. Um, I guess that doesn't answer your question about cyclical breathing. I mean, I think I think one of the things, the amazing things about music and and John Coltrane's music, I think, is a great example of this. Is unlike, let's say, you have someone who, let's say, is is known as an accomplished meditator. Let's say, or known as as, as a very spiritual uh, teacher and a, and a person who's achieved some. And sometimes you can kind of sense that they, that this is a person that has something, some wisdom worth sharing. But usually it's it's more or less, you know, it's easier to be skeptical, let's say. Whereas with music, it, it speaks so directly. So there's certain, some, certain music that's just undeniably sp- speaks to the heart, you know, no matter who you yeah. are. It just has a yeah. power to it. What it, about his music and the directions that he went? I mean, he went to some pretty some pretty far out directions in his music, but there's there's never denying any, any of the 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 power of the energy or the, you know, what's that there's that, like you said, like a unique voice is speaking through that music. One of the things that my takeaways from, from your book is, is this, this idea of finding your own voice through sitting quietly with oneself and, and um, asking questions of oneself and, and just allowing one's own inner voice to emerge and that this right. can, one can apply this to music. It's is this something that since you've written the book, or I guess through the process of the book, that you've discovered yourself has deepened. Um, and and is there a musical example, music that you've made recently that that is uh, publicly available that, or or at any point that you would recommend um, people checking out? Music that well, I would say if you uh, there's an artist I work with called Benny Boy. Um, that's kind of a, a cross between trap music and uh, indie pop. Um, it's kind of experimental R&B-ish, edgy. Um, um, and I think that's that's, a, that's something different than other things that are out there. Benny Boy, I'll check that out. Yeah. 
Is there anything else that you'd like to share um, before we wrap up? Uh, well, first of all, I'm thanking you for uh, finding my book and reading it and uh, thinking about it and tracking me down. Um, I appreciate that very much. Um, Pleasure. I, 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 I wouldn't, I don't know what I would add. I mean, I would encourage, I would encourage people to investigate meditation, investigate mindfulness, um, especially musicians, uh, fortify ourselves. You know, it's not a panacea. It doesn't solve all the problems, but it could help a certain percentage. Um, so I, I encourage people to, to investigate that. And uh, people can find me at Wolf in Tune on social media. Well, Richard Wolf, thank you so much. And thank you, Yisroel. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay, all the best. You too. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Richard Wolf, and you've been listening to some of his music. That was a track called Sink or Swim. Earlier, we played part of a track that he did with Benny Boy that he mentioned in the interview called Shrug Life, and also opened up with his remix of, you might have recognized it as it came in, Seals Crazy, the Wolf and Epic remix. And that played under lyrics that were written by Wolf and Epic, which was from an album called Notes of a Native Son by 90s R&B hip-hop artist Laquan. It's kind of a hard-to-find track. <laughs> I haunted it down on YouTube. It was actually the opening song of a movie called Strictly Business. And I can kind of hear some tough-minded Jewish influence in those lyrics, even though it's sung by a black rapper for, coming from an Afrocentric perspective. It's nice to hear music that emphasizes our commonalities and parallel struggles through history. So I want to thank Richard Wolf for sharing with us his time and his music and his wonderful book. So go check that out. Um, you can get that on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, wherever you get books. In tune, music as a bridge to mindfulness. And once again, I want to thank our Patreon supporters. Please. Join them, join us at soundheightsrecords.com slash Patreon and also we appreciate you know, feedback you can reach us at soundheightsrecords at gmail.com and remember with abundance and playing music we bring about the true redemption of